1997, I go to work for Mark Cuban at his startup in Dallas. At the time, it was called AudioNet. Um, but there was, a, there was a mantra that Cuban had uh, about how we were to treat each other and customers. It was really simple. Make love, not war. In this episode of 2000 Books, we have Tim Sanders, a technology pioneer and the author of Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. We have three intangibles in our life that we can give away to other people. And if we're smart about it, these, these stockpiles of intangibles, they actually grow as we give them away. And then, and then I really zero in on those, right? So that's what the book's all about. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vile. Tim Sanders has spent most of his career on the cutting edge of innovation and change. He was an early stage member of Mark Cuban's AudioNet, also known as Broadcast.com, which was later acquired by Yahoo for $5.7 billion. He currently serves as a board member of various early stage startups, and he is also a keynote speaker and author of five different books, Love is the Killer App, Today We're Rich, The Likeability Factor, Saving the World at Work, and Deal Storming. Today, we're talking about his New York Times best-selling book, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. What an interesting title. Tim, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Glad to be with you. Well, you know, what was interesting is one of the many books I read in 1998, I believe, was a book um, called Unleashing the Killer App by Larry Downs and Chunky Mua and a couple of other real cool forward-thinking people. And it really was about how technology could go mainstream through innovation and thinking about user value, et cetera. And it was a real prediction of things to come. And so it's like after they wrote that book and after I read the book, a big part of the conversation in Tech Circle, say like in 99, was like, what is going to be the next killer app? Because email had absolutely been a killer app, right? The Netscape browser had absolutely been a killer app. So everybody's like, what's the third one? What's the fourth one? And that's when I made the decision that love, high tech, high touch, um, that's going to be the killer app. And that's the one that's going to sustain over time. It'll just take on a new life uh, with digital technology. Right. And this kind of leads into the to the first question I usually like to ask, which is why should an ambitious entrepreneur read this book, learn from this book? If you want to become attractive to talent and investors and peers in your industry, you got to build a brand and your brand should be built on your reputation to multiply the value of everyone that you come in contact with, okay? If someone's a fountain of knowledge or opportunity, that's an incredible brand for a startup entrepreneur executive. It's what makes things easier for you. But more importantly, it'll give you a sense of purpose. So if you believe that your role is to educate connect and inspire people to do right by everyone working around them. You build a great culture. 
you create an incredible feedback loop for leadership. So it's going to be much easier for you to get pure information to understand how you're doing. But most importantly, you're going to get a lot smarter as an organization because this whole shark mentality, and I don't mean shark tank, I mean shark mentality that we've seen in business for the last hundred years or so, um, it only succeeds as long as there's not transparency in a market. But when all is transparent, you will see that nice, smart entrepreneurs wildly succeed in the long run, especially um, when the technology competition is really, really high and it depends on talent and goodwill. Well, that's great, Tim. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to have that realization as we go through our journeys, through our entrepreneurial journeys. So let's talk about your journey. What led you to writing the book and what have you been doing since then? Because I understand you've been involved in the startup scene for a while now. So 1997, I go to work for Mark Cuban at his startup in Dallas. At the time, it was called AudioNet. Um, before the IPO, we changed the name to Broadcast.com, um, audio video streaming, before it worked. <laughs> um, but there was, a, there was a mantra that Cuban had uh, about how we were to treat each other and customers. It was really simple. Make love, not war. He goes, the secret to being a good manager, the secret to being a good service provider is to find out what they want and give it to them if it's the right thing you know, for your business direction and to continue to give it to them and don't fight them. Don't be cynical about them. Develop trust in them. And it was his style and it made him really, really well liked by his customers and, and, and partners you know, in the ecosphere and it inspired me. And so... When I got to Yahoo after they bought us a few years later, I noticed that there was a lot of people in their mid-20s, and it was their first job, especially in sales and business development. And so I developed a little training program. At the time, we called it Gonzo Business, uh, the leadership that makes you feel good about mm-hmm. yourself and your purpose, et cetera. And that's where the bare bones of Love is the Killer app, the book, came from, where I was just teaching People early on in their career um, gather knowledge every day of your life for the purpose of sharing. Organize your network so you can give it away and assume people pay forward. Learn to keep it human in a world that's becoming digital. Those are like the core components of my early training program. And it kind of took on legs within the company. And meanwhile, kind of in the background, I was speaking a lot first for Broadcast.com, then later for Yahoo, um, and a literary agent in Dallas named Jan Miller, um, somebody told her to come see me speak. She saw me speak on what I just talked about, this gonzo thing, and she comes up at the end and she's like, I think this is going to be a great book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not a writer. And she goes, well, neither was Stephen Covey Sr. You know, when he came into my life. Neither was Dr. Phil McGraw when I discovered him You know, uh, when he was in the court thing, you know, in Amarillo, et cetera. So she convinced me that I could take this point of view and make it into a book. And we went to New York about six months later um, to meet with some publishers and we had a deal. And it was that crazy simple. Mm. Interesting. And since then, I guess you've been involved with a lot of different things, but especially with the startup world. So tell us about that. Last 10 years or so, I've been serving on boards, advisory board member, very early stage. I like to be involved somewhere in the seed round to the A round, but not past that. 
Um, and I've been on the board of companies like uh, Goodreads. Mm. It was purchased by Amazon a few years ago. Just Chandler and I, just we still to this day just love to talk about the future of reading on uh, electronically. Um, I was on the board for a company called Good, uh, Good.co, really cool little um, app that was uh, for culture fit. So it helped you understand if you were a good fit for a certain company or vice versa. Um, and they were recently purchased by a European um, recruiting company. I'm on the board now for a company called Stitch. You might remember them as Ferris. They're, um, it's a technology that allows multiple videos shot at the same time to be organized into a multi-camera single feed. It's really cool. But anyway, I, I, I have done some app stuff. I love SaaS. Um, if you're not part of the Saster culture, it's a great thing. Google Saster, it's obviously the blog that, that Jason Calcanis has, but it's also, um, uh, it's really a good community, big event every year in San Francisco. And that's where I meet a lot of new startup CEOs and, you know, continue to keep my finger on the pulse. This is great, Tim. We're going to enjoy learning from you because this this podcast, this is all about early stage entrepreneurs, ambitious entrepreneurs. And since you've been working with people like us for a long time, there's a lot to learn from you. So um, tell us about this book. Like, well, Give us maybe a 10,000 feet overview of the book. Oh, just a quick one minute overview. So I believe that people are good. I believe that as leaders, if we bring a positive expectation into our daily business life, we're going to treat people with love and empathy and respect. They will usually respond uh, by growing their capacity to trust other people and treat them with love and respect. It's going to show up with raving fans for customers. It's going to show up with people that develop their skill sets much more quickly because they're incredibly engaged and quite frankly, it's going to end up with you, the leader, having a whole lot more satisfaction about what you did with your talents, how you created something of value. I believe that we have role models that take us down the wrong path. So we see someone who is successful because he's been ruthless with the cap table. He's the brain. He has all the hands. He treats people like pawns, but he's really visceral, makes quick decisions, et cetera. You know, I hear this all the time. Somebody says, what about that guy? You know, what about, what about Mark at Zynga? You know, he's not love is the killer app. Here's what I always say. The bad guy, the guy doing it wrong, they always succeed at the beginning of the movie, don't they? As a matter of fact, 40 minutes in, it looks like they've got the perfect strategy. But by the end of the movie, the invisible hand of the market solves the problem, right? So do you think that Mark Pincus is on top of the world right now? No. I think the mistakes he made at Zynga with respect to how he thought about people, how he thought about long-term feelings, et cetera, that came back. And, and increasingly, you know, as time goes by, as that story gets shared, it'll be even tougher for him. So this whole idea that you've got to make work impersonal to be successful. It's hogwash. To say that work is not personal to an entrepreneur or a leader is like saying that life is not meaningful. So what I had to figure out, though, is if we're going to take love, compassion, and respect to work, how do we fulfill our social contract with the enterprise? Because I'm no idiot. I understand how business works. One of my mentors, Stanley Marcus Jr., years ago taught me that we have this dual relationship, right? We got to take care of the enterprise for everybody's sake, especially the owners who risked it all 
for us to have this opportunity. But at the same time, we have to be stewards for the human beings that come into our environment each and every day. And it's like, that's a really tough balancing act. But you have to remember that any company, no matter how old it is, it's still just a baby. And it can't take care of itself. It can't even cross the street without guidance. And that's our job. So I had to figure out, how do I bring love to work but take care of that baby? And that's where I figured out this idea that we have three intangibles in our life that we can give away to other people. And if we're smart about it, these, these stockpiles of intangibles, they actually grow as we give them away. And then I really zero in on those, right? So that's what the book's all about. The knowledge that we share, the networks that we share, the compassion that we share. If you do it intelligently, you don't get dumber or less connected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So important. So good. Well, this is, yeah, this is great, Tim. Um, and let's jump into the book now. Let's get into the details. And here we always like to uh, talk about the three key ideas, and it kind of ties in very nicely with what you're talking about, three specific uh, things, specific ways in which we can spread the love, I guess. And, and let's start with the num- with the first thing, which is knowledge. And in some ways, it's, uh, it's very close to the mission we are on here at 2000 Books, where we get the knowledge from the best books out there. So t- tell us about knowledge and what we need to do there so the foundation of our relationships with other people at work is knowledge sharing when you think about it the the people that you trust and care the most about are the ones that shared insights with you that challenged you or validated things you've been fighting for but gave you better ways to do it so knowledge sharing it's the currency of leadership it is the currency of building relationships inside companies. Um, But the thing here I discovered quite quickly is you can't share what you don't know. So it's critical that you become intensely curious and committed to lifelong learning. I believe that readers are leaders. And they're not just leaders of people. They're leaders of very productive conversations. For example, um, when I first met Cuban in 97, one of the things that impressed me the most about him was how voracious he was about reading books. And not just the books you would expect in IT or web, etc. He had edge-level curiosity. This is something that I've developed as an entrepreneur myself. Anything that touches anything that touches what I care about becomes interesting to me. So I'm going to go learn how corporate finance works. I'm going to master EBITDA. I'm going to understand the history of governance. That's an edge-level thing, right? Why do I need to know that? I've just got a six-person startup that's just making code right now. I need to know it because it's going to be important later. And I might be able to share it in conversation to help someone. So we have to be committed to learn in a diverse number of areas at a very deep level, not just reading a blog post, but plowing our way through one, two, three, or four books. Mm. So that's the, I, I, one of the things I, I, I kind of pointed out is that reading business books is an act of business love because it's usually not that fun, mm-hmm. but the value of going all the way through this 300-page book is you don't just understand an idea at the highest level, the kernel of the idea, you understand its premise, 
you, you, you get the framework that's been revealed from the book on how to implement that idea. You're rich with case studies. You've got all this data to think about. So then as you share this with other people, you can share it much more deeply. And you also have a better mindset that when they give you feedback about whether it does, doesn't work, how it works in their industry, you actually get a lot smarter about this edge level concept. So one of the things that I tell people is you always read in transition. For example, I don't sleep on planes. I take a hundred trips a year all mm -hmm. over the world. And I, unless I'm going to the Middle East or Europe on an overnight, I do not sleep on a plane because that three, that four, that five hour plane ride enables me to read a book cover to cover that I can put to use when I hit the ground on the other side. So gain knowledge, but then in every conversation, find a way to share the right knowledge for the right situation. And one of the things I've learned is that if you want to open the door to either knowledge sharing or networking, ask the right questions. Hmm. So when I'm at an industry event, I don't ask someone like, what do you do? I ask someone, what's your wow project these days? Hmm. What, are you, what are you working on that you're really excited about? And, and then I try to stay very quiet and let them unpack it for me. Because the sequence, dude, is always like this. Here's my dreams about this project. Here's some of the realities about what's going on with the project. And here's some missing pieces. And I got to tell you, the missing pieces will always be knowledge or resources. Mm -hmm. Resources are always solved through networking, right? So if you ask the right question, now you have an opportunity to take this treasure trove of insights, not just about your core business, but everything that touches it, and share it. And that makes you a fountain of knowledge in conversation. And it allows you to directly help people. I think it's one of the most generous things you could ever do was to become incredibly knowledgeable for the purpose of giving it away. Yeah. And the amazing thing about knowledge is that the more we give, not only the more we get, but the more we give, the more we share, that's when we learn the most. That's when we remember the best. That's when we actually incorporate the knowledge into our on being in some ways. Right. Teach once, learn twice, right? Yeah. But, but it's true because if I'm being generous with you, not only in terms of like I took a lot of time to learn something, but I'm just going to freely give it to you. And I'm going to really coach you, challenge you, apply it to you. You're going to want to reciprocate, okay? So, so you might be like, hey, Tim, thanks for talking to me about that digital brand marketing you know, framework you read about. Uh, I want to talk to you about something you might not know a lot about, and that's cryptocurrency. I want to catch you up mm -hmm. on what's going on right now with blockchain because I don't know anything. And you're going to give me that knowledge back. Or, as you say, you know, we get feedback. And somebody can say, yeah, Tim, that thing you just described is interesting, but in my space over here in fintech, let me tell you how this really works. I just got a lot smarter about that topic. So that's how the conversation goes. But, but here's something I've learned about mentorship. That's when you give that gift of knowledge to help the hero, you know, make it to the next stage of her journey. Mm -hmm. In mentorship, make sure that at least 25% of the time you spend with your mentee is spent letting them give back 
to you. In other words, at the end of these mentorship conversations, empower them to share. And, and, and the way you do this is to pick the right mentees. So, so one of my viewpoints is always help heroes first. So when it comes to having mentees, you need to be proactive. And what you want to look for is an ambitious, generous person who's going somewhere just a little bit fast. Mm-hmm. That's what you're looking for. You're going to give them the information to solve their delta. And at the end of each session, you're going to give them the opportunity to teach you why they're going so fast. Mm-hmm. And they will be very happy to educate you. I learned this when Stanley Marcus was mentoring me because he would always take 15 minutes at the end to have me give him the latest and greatest of what was going on with the web, even though he was a retail guy. And that's where I learned you never get dumber in the act of making others smarter so long as you understand the mentor is not the wise old man, the wise old woman, always. Oftentimes, it's just a peer that cares. This is great. This is like uh, this is this is so good because now we, I mean, understanding that sharing or the whole book. Uh, when I step back and look at it, is all these things. The more we give, the more we get back in return. That's what you're really telling us. Okay. Well, so let's talk about the next big idea in the book, which is network, and uh, tell us about Metcalf's law, and then we'll get into the whole network thing. So, so the idea here is we're all very familiar with Moore's law, right? So we know that every 18 months, you know, there's the doubling effect of, of processor power. But what's really interesting to me is Metcalf's law that as you add nodes to your network, the value of your network grows exponentially. Yeah. 10 nodes equals 100. I mean, your network is your net worth, your network of relationships, your strength, your stature within that network is your ultimate power source. It's your stronghold. It's also the greatest gift you can give to other people if you know how to do it right. So the, the trick to think about networking is to have the right perspective about what it's all about. Mm. So, so networking is neither prospecting or brokering. Okay? When, when you're trying to find a solution to your problem, you are prospecting. That's not networking. When you expect to receive something because you've shared your network with others, that's not networking. That's brokering, okay? Mm. I don't have a problem with either prospecting or brokering for entrepreneurs. Those are important things to figure out. But please, networking is when you put two people together that should meet, get out of the way, and only expect them to take action and pay forward. Mm. That is networking. Because when you approach it with that perspective, you gain trust. You create more engagement. You produce surprise and delight. And I believe you really do restore faith in other people that there are actually truly generous human beings in the world of business. So that's the first trick is that networking is to give, not to gain. You don't screen people to see if they have value for you. You screen people's dreams and problems to see if you have value for them. And that is the way to think about networking. Mm, such a distinction or such a, such a uh, I guess it's an exact opposite way of what we're taught 
in some ways to do or approach the world, which is through our own selfish interests. We can't help it. I mean, it's just it's just human nature. I mean, we, we, we think it's all like trading cards. Um, but the reality is, if anybody's ever introduced you to a third party and then mysteriously expected something later, it really hurts your feelings. Yeah. Be, be, because that wasn't set as an expectation up front. So, I mean, networking just needs to be as fluid as the internet in terms of getting rid of all the friction, yeah. all the middle players. And so that's why we have to ask the right questions. We have to take the right actions. We have to have the right expectations. And quite frankly, we've got to put a process in place so that we really, really get good at networking. Because I'll tell you this, the difference between sharing knowledge and sharing your network of relationships is huge in terms of risk. Mm. I, I call it in the book, I call it the difference between ham and eggs. <laughs> the chicken is involved, but the pig is fully committed, okay? <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're generous about sharing knowledge, not proprietary knowledge, right? Not, not business concept stuff that shouldn't be shared. I mean knowledge, insights. You, you really can't go wrong. You can actually share with a competitor and they will accidentally give you back really good information that actually still keeps you smarter than them, right? They call that learning effects, by mm. the way. But with networking, you can screw it up. You can put people together that hate each other and they hate you for doing it. You can put people together where um, one person's a user, another person's generous, so it goes upside down. You got to get really good about this. That's why I say nice, smart people succeed. So you have to figure out who to network, when to network, why to network, and exactly what your role is in fusing them together. Yeah, and you have a process along on this uh, whole thing, which is collecting, connecting, and disappearing. And maybe we'll get into that as we talk about the action items. Um, um, let's talk about the next or the last big idea in the book, which is compassion. And, I mean, it, it sounds kind of uh, uh, very new-agey for a lot of people because you, we don't associate compassion with business. But, of course, that's not uh, how it goes. Well, again, you know, it's the word... The words coded in our DNA is to be soft, to, to have people take advantage of you. If you had compassion, then you'd stop for every you know, bleeding heart and you'd never make profit. I mean, those are the beliefs, right? But let's define compassion. Compassion is your desire that others do not suffer unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Okay? That is the basis of user experience. When you think of the entire CX movement that has changed everything from bricks to clicks, it's all about compassion. When we think about user journey, we think about what can take away confusion, what can take away um, frustration and anxiety, what can solve mystery. When you look at incredibly elegant applications today, they were designed with compassion in mind. Or as one Sony designer used to like to say, don't put the power button there, that insults me. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, when you think about it, if we define compassion about what it's really all about, um, reduce suffering, increase personal growth and happiness, um, then I think it's a very good thing uh, for a leader to bring to work because that's the only way to really unleash engagement where your best talents just can't stop thinking about the product. 
They, they, they can't do anything if the customer's not happy. All those cascade down from us. So if we go to work, think like it cold, don't think about human design, um, we get a lot of turnover and we get a lot of customers um, who are having a bad time doing business with us. Yeah, it's it's what you said in the book, which is the idea that just because we're at work or we're at business doesn't mean we're not human and we're not, you know, we're not hungry for compassion or that's not something. Yeah, when you think about it, there's a lot of people that work is their life. I mean, it's the biggest part of their life. It's who they identify themselves with the most. And if that's the case, then why should they suffer every day from nine to five because of our fears as leaders that someone will take advantage of us, mm -hmm. right? But they suffer because of that. Or they suffer because we are so focused on the financial KPIs. Um, we're not very good at managing our investor owners. And that means that at the end of the day, we see human beings as a cost center. And when you see something as a cost center, you treat it like a cost center. And that objectification is where people... Um, get put in situations where it's a miserable place to work, mm. mean-spirited, 247 treadmill, soul-crushing. All that starts at the top. Uh, the way I like to say it is the fish always stinks from the head. <laughs> so like culture in a company, even a startup, culture is a conversation led by leaders punctuated by their actions about how we do things here. And that's why it's critical for the leader to have their head screwed on straight about business, especially when they're young and when they're not as secure about what other people think about them. Because surprisingly, that's where I've seen the meanest management styles is in the mid-20s to the mid-30s, while we're still kind of coming up and trying to make a name for ourselves. Oh. So, uh, Tim, we've been talking about all these great ideas, but let's put them into practice let's let's make people really take action on this because here we always say there's no learning without action so um how can people apply these ideas apply knowledge and network and compassion into their own business into their own lives knowledge read one book every eight weeks cover to cover Study it like a college student making notes and underlining stuff, which is, you know, easy to do in Kindle and easy to rip at my.kindle.com. Read that book, though, on behalf of someone you do business with to solve their problem. This is called prescriptive reading. It might be a customer. It might be someone that works for you. It might be, if you really want to be brave, it might be one of your investors, your angels, who are trying to solve one of their business problems. Just take it upon yourself to read a book on their behalf, study it like a student, and then share your insights in conversation. Hmm. It will be rocket fuel that drives your NFC. For those listening on the podcast, write this down. NFC, need for cognition. Need for cognition is the number one predictor of success. Yes, even ahead of grit. Need for even cognition. ahead of grit. Yeah, NFC is the secret to all success. People say like, okay, I worked for Mark Cuban. What was that like? It's great working for a high NFC guy. He's a, he's a 99 out of 100 NFC. He's got to understand everything that has anything to do with anything he's interested in. That the, a, a Researchers would call that epistemal. Uh, curiosity, right? Learning with a purpose. When, when you've got high NFC, 
you can master anything and you will outperform your competitors by miles. And that's why he's a billionaire today, high NFC. And this has been true for every high success person I've ever met, which has huge NFC. How do you develop this? You develop it by getting a real high return on attention so that when you spend the time to read a book and study it like a student and then share it in conversations, you need to get something out of that that is really satisfying. And there is nothing more satisfying than mentoring someone, especially peer-to-peer, especially through prescriptive reading. That'll just like blow your NFC through the roof. So that's what we're going to do on knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's the takeaway. Read a book every two, eight weeks. And of course, uh, if you come listen to the podcast, you can find the best books that you want to listen to. So That's right, that's man. The, the more books you share, the more book recommendations you receive, you will be awash in highly curated recommendations. Okay, networking. Introduce three people every week that should meet and do it Friday by 3 p.m. Let me say this all over again. Mm-hmm. Introduce three people a week that should meet by Friday at 3 p.m. Okay? Um, this is a twist. So a lot of times you think of networking as a two-person introduction. I'm going to introduce him to him. You're not thinking deep enough. Um, what I've noticed is that the networking introductions that produce the most real-world value, like something happened, mm-hmm. involve a third person. Because there's the, there's the symptom and there's the root cause of a problem. So I'll illustrate this. One of the greatest networkers in history is Elmer Letterman, New York City. There's a book called Masters of Networking by Ivan Meisner. You can read more. Um, but Letterman created a life insurance company during the Great Depression. Um, really tough business, you can imagine. His marketing plan was a Friday lunch at the Manhattan Four Seasons. So he'd spend the week prospecting to find three people that should meet, okay? Mm. So he'd find the star, the entrepreneur, the guy that wants to open a restaurant in the meatpacking district, got a great plan, already lined up chefs, great rent. So he's going to marry that guy in this networking lunch to an investor who in the 30s is actually putting money up for really good ideas, not many of them, so that he's a high-value person to bring to this meeting. And then finally, he's going to bring in a contractor who can take an old burnt-out building and turn it into a beautiful restaurant on time, on budget, because that guy's going to be super important you know, to the equation. And that is the lunch, the hmm. chef, the investor, the contractor. And he did that 50 weeks out of the year for 10 years, and he became a super wealthy man by the 1940s because he created a market of goodwill. And he just got really good at it. And that's where he learned there's always that third person. And you got to do this. Um, Good news for everybody on the podcast is you don't have to do that over lunch. You can do that over a Skype. You can do it over email. But if you do it over email, don't be sloppy and just throw it over the fence because no one follows up. you got to create an interest why these three people should meet with LinkedIn profile links and a little bit more salesmanship on your part. But the point is, if you introduce three people every week that should meet and you do this religiously, your network is going to explode in strength and stature. I'm not telling you your numbers are going to get better, but your human clout level will go up a lot if you do that plan. This is this is really good. Uh, well, I want to dig deeper into this one. Uh, you said... What was the name of the uh, person, uh, the agent? So Elmer Letterman. Elmer Letterman. So Elmer Letterman, he would organize 
within the week, he would organize the lunch and get it uh-huh. done by uh-huh. Friday afternoon. Uh-huh. And these were people, did he know these people well sure. enough to bring them together? He, or did he like, okay, I just met this guy a couple of times and I think that would be a good fit. Like how how did that come about? Because a lot of, of times we're organized. Yeah. First of all, he was organized. So when he got to know a person, he understood a person's resources and their personality style. Back then it was real basic. Mm-hmm. Um, the investor has money and is willing to invest in a certain type of business plan, but this investor is introverted. So if you bring in a blowhard, he's going to freak out. I'm just giving you that, like some things I've learned about Elmer from his relatives um, about how he did it. So he was, re- he was rather sophisticated, um, and he, was, he kind of predicted success, right? So, so sometimes he'd have somebody that he's known a long time, like that investor, uh, and somebody that he's known a little bit of the time, like the chef, he's known him for a few months, and then a guy he barely knows, but has been, you know, that, that has been referred to him in his network, the contractor. So they could all be at various levels of association with Elmer, but he has some reason to believe that they add value to each other and that they will gel with each other. And that's really the secret, I think, to this. He also spent some time. I mean, he, he, one of his, his nephews explained that he'd spend a half day a week on this, setting this thing up. Wow. I mean, every one of these lunches was magic. Yeah, he had some ones that didn't work, and he learned every single time from it because what he was focusing on is a specific opportunity and at least two key players. So what he really specialized in was entrepreneur, business owner, manager with a problem, and two people that can help. This is great. Um, he spent half a day doing it, and that's uh, But um, look at the ROI. Yeah. I mean, you know, as the market came back in the late 30s, early 40s, nobody would buy life insurance from anybody but Elmer Letterman. I mean, his method of networking was the original viral marketing. Yeah, and he was just adding value without... It was, and it was so surprising, too, because... You know, let, let's 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 walk this chef thing through because he, he really did make that kind of introduction. When when the chef opens the restaurant, and there's a line around the block, Elmer doesn't expect a free meal or even a cut in the line. He's in the back of the line, mm. and when he shakes the chef's hand at the front door, he asks the chef, "Wow, how did you do it?" <laughs> See, because the great networker has humility about the value of a single connection, right? So so that lunch was literally one step out of a thousand steps of the entrepreneur's journey. And Letterman was self-aware enough to know that. See, that's why we're so insulted when someone makes a networking introduction and then expects us to give them a piece of our startup. Mm-hmm. That's insulting. But when someone is humble about it and knows it's just one of many favors you're going to need to curry to be successful, we love that person even more. And that's what creates that trust and that bond and really grows to your strength and stature in a network as as a giver without expectations. Yeah. um, I want to read a lot about this guy now. What was the name of the book? Ivan Meisner's book, is it? It's called Masters of Networking. Masters of Networking. Yeah, but it's a good story. I'll send you more on it. Um, You can put in show notes later. Um, but it's a blueprint. And with oh, technology cool. today, we can take Letterman's simple system and we can blossom it into who we are. I mean, I know people that have taken this after reading Love is the Killer app. I'll, I'll give you an example of one that's not in the startup world. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake Udell, he runs Third Brain Management. 
Um, he has a lot of very popular EDM acts now. He managed Cruella from the very beginning. He managed Zoo from the very first time Zoo had an idea for a song called Faded. He's building a really good roster. He's a Forbes 30 under 30, the only manager on the list. Um, he, he lives this. This is something he's just like passionate about doing is making that connection every Friday. His work isn't done if he hasn't done it. For those of you that are interested in knowing more about Jake, just Google 20-something podcast Hmm. because he does a podcast for 20-somethings about ambition and about not waiting till you're 30 and getting out of your parents' house and doing something really hard while you have the energy to do it. And it's really inspiring. But he lives this love cat strategy of networking and he's become rather sophisticated at it. Love it. All right, let's talk about the third, um, I guess the third action item, which is related to compassion. So tell us how we put that into play. So I want you, um, if you're an entrepreneur and there are human beings working for you, I want you to take on a design project, okay? I want you to segment the employee experience down to every transaction. So from the second they get up to the second they go to bed, you got to find those transaction points that you influence or control mm. and study each one of them for pain point or ability to stage a signature moment. Got it. Every great brand that infuses compassion into user experience, this is what they do. They understand and segment all of the see, – see, the user, the employee – your business partner, they don't have one experience working with you, okay? They have a lot of little experiences that add up to an impression and in some ways determine a lot of their quality of life and meaning. Mm. And if you take a design approach to say, we are going to stop sending email at 3 in the morning because we're screwing up people's sleep, They wake up in the morning and the first thing they read is some action item email that makes them crazy. It puts them in a bad mood. They come to work. They've got email bankruptcy every day because we're not putting enough headcount in to manage the workflow of issues. All of these are design flaws in entrepreneurship and leadership, and they come from a lack of compassion. Mm -hmm. But if you segment the total experience of your employee 247 and look at everything you control from a transactional basis, you'll get rid of all of the pain points and you'll create a very good place to work. So that is a very specific way to put compassion to work. And the basic rule of thumb is negative emotions are never productive in a logical working environment. Mm. Okay? If you're trying to get a boxer to punch harder than you can tell them their opponent said something about his mama, okay? And that's going to work. But you don't go do that with a coder, Mm. right? With a coder, you create an environment that gives the coder a sense of mastery and meaning and purpose, and that person will solve problems. And they'll collaborate with the person sitting next to them, and they'll build great stuff. And you only do that by creating the right environment that signals to them that you actually care. And the only way you're going to do that is through this design practice of segmenting the total experience and then hypercritically analyzing each transaction. Beautiful. This is great. Uh, uh, lines in lines up nicely with what uh, Dan Pink 
talked about on this broadcast with this book drive so tim um thank you very much for taking the time today to do this interview tell our listeners how to get hold of you where to find you and learn so, from you absolutely so just visit timsanders.com at timsanders.com, you can connect with me on all my social networks. You can check out my, my books, including the latest one, Deal Storming, about how to do big deals. Um, just come to timsanders.com, and if you want to give me some feedback or talk to me, just hit the contact button. I'm super interactive, and I'm, I'm open to all. Got it. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Wow, another great interview. But the question I'm obsessed with is, Will you take action on the ideas you just learned and see results in your life? Or will you just collect this knowledge, this information, without really putting it to any use? Edgar Dale's research, which is known as the cone of learning, has shown that one of the best ways to remember what you just learned is to move from passive learning mode to active learning mode. And the most powerful of all active learning modes is applying and using what you've just learned. That way you remember up to 90% of what you just learned even two weeks from now. Compare that to remembering 10% if you just read some things. So don't let this time you invested in listening to this interview go to waste. Go get the summary and action guide of this interview for free at 2000books.com summary. Or you can even text the word summary to 44222 and we will send you the summary and action guide for free. So until next time, my ambitious friends, Go out and live a courageous life.